So last week in here, we talked about one of the wings of awakening, which is the teaching we've been looking at for many weeks now. And that particular wing is a list, it's actually two of the wings of awakening. It's um, the list that's known as both the five faculties and the five strengths of your practice. So five things that really support your practice and encourage it, and then five things that once they're developed are really, they're kind of the muscles of your practice, if you will. And those five are faith or conviction, which is actually, I think, a better translation, and effort or the wise use of energy, and mindfulness itself, what we're doing here, Um, concentration, and then wisdom or discernment. And some of you, those of you who were here, talked with each other and picked something that you were going to work on. So I'm not going to ask you to report in. There's no quiz, although it might be kind of fun if there were, but we won't do that. But I wanted to come back to that list, since it is really two of the lists. It's sort of interesting to have two that are identical. And tonight I wanted to talk just about faith and talk about it primarily as a strength of practice and then actually use it to jump into something else that I'll get to at the end of the talk. So I think it's really important to consider the translation as conviction because As I said last week, the word faith is tricky for people um, and sometimes has negative connotations depending on what your religious upbringing was. My dad, my dad who recently died, really loved the saying that you sometimes see on bumper stickers or in veterinary offices, which says, help me become the person my dog thinks I am. And I actually rather like that. I'm a dog person myself. And, of course, my dogs think I'm fabulous. And, you know, I'm the hander out of treats, and I'm the source of fun, and I take care of them. But as some of you who know me well, um, have some people have opinions other than the ones my dogs do. And, and I think, indeed, my dogs don't see all of me, do they? You neither do yours. And but these beings have such confidence in us. And so we have this conviction of ours is actually what that is leading us toward that place where we can blossom in our practice. So many of you, if I look around the room, I know some of you pretty well, some of you I don't know at all. So some of you are very, very dedicated practitioners. You've been coming to Vipassana Santa Cruz for years and years, and maybe before that you did other kinds of practice, and you come to the cushion over and over again. And some of the rest of you may be here, for even, maybe even for the first time tonight. You know, Maybe you've never meditated before, and you're trying it out. But even if that's true, you have some sense of being on some kind of an inner journey. 
and you have some sense of dedication and commitment to that journey, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't be here. As we said at the beginning, some of you weren't here at the beginning of the class, but we were commenting on what a beautiful day it had been and how it wouldn't be surprising if not too many people showed up tonight because it might be a much nicer night to go walking on Westcliff Drive or something like that. But you didn't do that. You know, none of us did that. And here we all are practicing together. And over the years, I've encountered people who practice under extraordinary situations. There's a whole group of people here who go down to Soledad every week, and they teach meditation to men who are in the prison. And those people have amazing practices in the prison. And if you question that, go over there. There's a a little newsletter that's called the Sangha Connection, right? Yeah? And you will read some of the things that those guys have to say about their practice. And it is amazing. And it's always, I always learn something when I read that little newsletter. And so they bring this incredible commitment and dedication to their practice under those very difficult conditions. And I myself, at different times, did some teaching in one of the women's prisons at one point and also have had some connection with women who have been in prison and heard other stories about people using metta practice or mindfulness practice in order to turn um, a situation that could be seen as being very difficult and a huge struggle into some place in which they learned and their lives changed and their hearts changed. So faith is both a faculty, conviction is a faculty, it's something that that you can use to develop your practice and um, it's also a strength. It's also a strength. And so it's, it's that which arises when we have practiced enough to know that what we are doing is useful and to actually see some of the things that the Buddha was pointing toward for ourselves. And so just to go over some of what we talked about last week, the, the Buddha talks about um, faith as coming in different stages. So the place of faith at the beginning, so this is really more where it's a faculty, is, is the place where we are inspired. So it's, it's whatever brought you to practice in the first time. It's what, what woke you up, the, the book or the teacher or the friend or Sometimes, sometimes even it's an event in our life that, that inspires um, this kind of seeking. And, and it, it makes us willing to try something, makes us willing to follow it. And so, and I talked, I think I, I, think I talked, I can't remember what I said where anymore. Um, I think I talked here last week about when I went to the Transpersonal Psych Conference at Asilomar many, many years ago now and heard Roger Walsh, who's a great Vipassana practitioner. And Roger 
Roger gave the keynote um, speech to there were probably a thousand people there that year, and and he is he's done. I think Roger's done more three month retreats than just about anybody I know, and he talked about. Um, his passion for the suffering of the world. And as he talked, he began to talk about all the wars and all the places of environmental crisis and, and all of the starvation and all of the children who weren't getting any education. And He just had this incredible list of the suffering in the world. And as he began to talk about that list, he began to weep. And, you know, this is a trained psychiatrist. He's standing up there in front of all those people and talking about the suffering, and he's weeping. And I was blown away. And it was like, I don't know what it is that he's got, but I want that. I want to find out something about that kind of heart. And it really was one of the significant inspirations for my practice. And it inspired me to want to learn more and to study more and to practice more. Every one of us has a story like that. You know, something that that woke you up. And then, you know, we do the practice. You sit, you study, you read, you work with wise speech and wise action and all of the different things that we do. And we train. We take this on as a training. And we talk in here a lot about how it is our practice is a training. It's like going to the gym. And then ultimately, um, you begin to see things for yourself. And what's really important about that seeing for yourself is that you trust deeply your own experience. You really come to trust your own experience. And that's, I think, the place where conviction really becomes a strength in our practice, where you know that you can trust your own experience. This is not something that all of us have. You know, many of us, as we grew up, we didn't learn that we could trust our own experience. And sometimes we were taught that um, certain beliefs were required, but... You know, you couldn't quite check them out, and and um, and sometimes we were um, not treated with respect about the things that we did understand or that we did see, and sometimes we were judged and criticized so much that we came to not trust our our own experience. And you know, even the Buddha, even the Buddha, as he sat under the Bodhi tree, you know. And Mara, who is the figure in Buddhist mythology who um, always challenges waking up and kind of presents all the reasons why you wouldn't want to wake up. And he and Mara says to the Buddha, what are you doing there? What, what gives you the right to sit there and to try to wake up? Imagine saying that to the Buddha, huh? And the Buddha reached out and, and he called the earth to witness that he had the right to wake up, you know, and, and that he had the conviction, his faith, his conviction was really strong at that point, that he actually could see something, that he could um, achieve the full opening of the heart and the mind that he went on to do. 
So you remember last week, those of you who are here, we talked that um, the simile that the Buddha gives about faith is that of going hunting for an elephant in the jungle. Um, I'm very fond of the simile, actually. Yeah. And so in the beginning, you know, when you have that moment of inspiration, it's like seeing the footprint of the elephant around the edge of the jungle. And so you think, oh, aha, there might be an elephant. This could be really useful, because remember in those days they were used to work. And so you get interested, is there really an elephant in the jungle? Is there something useful in this Vipassana practice? Will it work for me? And so you start hunting. And and then, you know, um, you hunt, and that, that's, the hunting is hard work. You know, it's hunt, hard work hunting for elephants in the jungle, and it's hard work starting up a practice. Those of us who've done it know that, and those of you who are doing it know that. And it's different, and it's strange, and you're not, you're not sure about it, and you're not sure about the instructions, and it just is, it, sometimes the body is uncomfortable. And so you track the elephant through the jungle and, and because you want to know, you know, what, what is, is it there and what kind of an elephant is it? And, um, and we investigate. That's the investigative part of the practice. And that understanding that all of the teachings are there all of the teachings of the Buddha are meant to be tools for investigation, for the investigation of your own heart and mind. They're not meant to be descriptive of what is so about your heart and mind. You're not expected to take it on belief. You're expected to take the teaching and notice, for example, how incredibly unruly the mind is. You know, and and so sometimes at retreats, often people come in and they say, "Oh, my mind, it's terrible. It's running all over the place. I don't know what to do about it. Maybe I should leave the retreat." That's usually what they say. Maybe I should leave the retreat. And the answer to it is no. There's no need to leave the retreat. You're seeing for yourself what is true about the mind. This is great. It's wonderful that you see that the mind is unruly. The other night at the committed students group, we did our check-in with little haiku poems. And one of the check-ins went like this. Popcorn mind. Am I in love with the skillet? Popcorn mind, am I in love with the skillet? Now, what's the skillet? We could have a lot of fun, you know. But seeing for yourself, oh, the mind, it's crazy. It's popping like popcorn. And what is it that keeps heating up that it does that? This person was investigating their mind. You know, they weren't saying, oh, the mind... Diamond, radiance, utter stillness, clarity. <laughs> it would be great if you could. And it does happen once in a while. But, you know, it takes a while to get there. And the getting there really requires that conviction, that willingness to, 
to look and to investigate. So it takes a lot of courage, this conviction and this search. And and over and over, we're invited to stay with just what is, in our experience, that popcorn mind, the aching body, the noise, whatever it is that's the sirens during the sitting. Some of you might have noticed that. And it can take us right to the edge of our capacity. How can I bear this sometimes? That question can come up in our practice. How can I How can I sit here? How can I stay mindful with the situation in my life? How can I work with this very difficult relationship as practice and and really stay with it with all of my heart and with all of my energy? And so really the, there's an image for practice that's it's as though, you know, as we're on on this journey, we become the hero, right? That hero of mythology who's strong and courageous and yet also encounters incredible difficulties and who um, plunges into very difficult waters sometimes and in the end is able to help others who are coming along. And in the end, you know, in the end of the elephant simile, then we find... Oh, yes, there is an elephant. There's a really big elephant here that can be very helpful in our work. And in the end of our practice, we begin to see, oh, some of these things that the Buddha said are true. Look, look how incredibly impermanent everything is. It takes your breath away sometimes when you really see how impermanent everything is. Or you see the some way in which you really do create your own suffering or you get caught in it and all the different ways that the heart and the mind um, get stuck in suffering. Sometimes what you see, sometimes your conviction is that you don't know. You don't know anything. That's actually a very useful thing to begin to see, that all we have is what the mind tells us is so, but who knows what's really true. And so you begin to understand that this thing about knowing that we thought was what we were going to get is really kind of dicey. And who knows? Who knows? You know. And so what you begin to know is that you don't really know. And that can be a very useful stance to take out into your life. It's really important to remember, last week we looked at how the, the five faculties balance each other. Remember? And so faith is balanced by wisdom, and effort is balanced by concentration, and then mindfulness sort of works out, susses out, what it is that is most needed. And so faith and wisdom are really a pair. And faith is, is, has that level of juice and excitement and devotion sometimes. And, and people who like um, devotional practices often are people with a lot of conviction. But faith by itself is not so helpful always because sometimes it doesn't see so clearly. And so wisdom or discernment, that 
place that really can cut into something and see very clearly what is so um, can balance that that kind of blindness of of um, faith. But of course, the catch with wisdom is sometimes that penetrating, cutting clarity can be a little dry and not so exciting. And after a while. Um, Mm, we want it's like we want a little something more and we need the juice of the conviction so the two really go together so where I wanted to go at the end of this was one of the things that happens of course with conviction when you get excited actually how many people are here because they had somewhere along the line a friend who was a meditator who told you about it. So a number of hands. Some of you aren't so sure, but okay. So a number of people. How many of you are here because you read a book or heard a video, heard an audio tape or recording or saw a video of a teacher? A few more hands. Okay. So most of us are here because somehow we heard about this practice, right? And you heard it from your friend, you heard it from the book or whatever. Probably, you know, every now and then there's somebody whose doctor said, well, you really need to meditate, so you better try it out. This was, that brings us, there's all kinds of things. But often it's a kind of word of mouth thing. And it comes out of the fact that your friend or the author or the person who told you about it really thought that this practice was wonderful. And this is how the Dharma goes on. Generation to generation, people get excited, they talk about it, they come and they practice, and then they they teach it, they spread it around, whether you are an actual teacher or whether you're doing it as what we sometimes call a spiritual friend, doesn't matter so much. And so from generation to generation, the Dharma goes on. So one of the things, we talked about this quite a lot at the Tuesday class this week. One of the things I wanted to talk about tonight a little more clearly was um, the practice of generosity. And so some of you are here because of the generosity of your friends and your teachers. And generosity is a practice that is basic in Buddhism. In Asia, generosity is taught first to children. And it's usually taught in the traditional village culture. It was taught um, quite easily because in that culture, the monks and the nuns, if there were any, but there were more monks than nuns, would come out into the village with their alms bowls and every day, and that's how they got food. They would go down the road. They're not allowed to keep food overnight, actually. And so, and people would put the food for their one meal of the day in the bowl, and then they would go back to the monastery and eat it. And in that way, the village supported the monks, and then the monks, in turn, would offer teachings, and they would be there at the temple. And so it was a culture that it really worked that way, you know. There was a lot of giving back and forth and the practice of generosity. So some years ago, um, in this lineage, 
um, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield went off to Asia. They were all young, very young, some of them. They were in the Peace Corps or not. And, but they were in that generation of people who went to Asia and traveled around. And they all somehow fell into this practice. There's lots, all the stories are wonderful, but we won't go there tonight. And um, they came back to this country all excited. They were going to. They were very excited about this wonderful practice of mindfulness, and they could see that it didn't have to be hmm, one of their pieces of their vision was that it, it didn't have to be caught in the culture of Asia. It was a practice that could be taught in a very simple way and that would work well in our culture. And so they started this tradition of teaching Vipassana retreats. I don't know, some of you, I don't know if any, I don't see anybody here that I know was in in that world, but some of you may have been. And they traveled around, this is before there were any, there was no Spirit Rock, there was no IMS in Massachusetts. They traveled around from place to place, and they would set up in a camp or whatever, and they would teach a retreat, and and then they would, after the retreat was over, they would go on, and then a few weeks later they'd teach another one. And because they <coughs> wanted to continue the practice of generosity, what they did was they said, okay, you know, if there's, a, if there's money that we need for the retreat, like to pay the center or the camp or wherever it was, they would charge for that. But they themselves did not receive anything. And then at the end, out of that... And at the end, there would be a basket out. And if you wanted to support the teachers so that they could go on and do more teachings, you could do that. So it was a kind of a gypsy world. And um, they kind of went from place to place. And there were a group of people who were cooks and managers who also sort of were part of that gypsy lifestyle. And somehow they cobbled together a living. A few of them moved into writing things like best-selling books, which helped (laughs) a lot for those who were beginning to have sort of more normal Western, what we would think of as a normal Western lifestyle, you know, family, children, that kind of thing. So here at Vipassana Santa Cruz and at other urban Dharma centers, um, we have kind of, you know, also out of our conviction that this dharma is astounding and wonderful and helpful, want to continue to teach. And as you know, this place is completely the fruit of incredible generosity. Everything you see in here was given. Everything. And if not directly, the money for it was given to us. But sometimes, you know, somebody walked in one night and said, gee, you could, you, you, I, I think you'd like a Guanyin statue. And the next thing we know, we had that beautiful Guanyin statue that's in the back. You know, one day I went to Spirit Rock, and and Jack said, you know, Spirit Rock would like to give you guys a gift for Vipassana Santa Cruz. Go pick out one of the Buddhas. And so I went and picked out one of the. I didn't pick out one of the cheapest ones. I have to admit, <laughs> but they were willing. It didn't matter. He was happy. And so we have a system here where there's a couple of baskets over there. One of them is for the expenses of the sangha, 
And you've heard a lot about that, especially those of you who've been here for a long time. The other one is for the teachers or the teachings, depending on how you look at it. So this is where I'm getting to tonight. You can see. And um, so what happens here, as has happened anywhere, is that none of us are paid. I'm not paid. Carla's not paid. Bob, Jill. Nobody is paid when they teach at a retreat or here. And, um, and so whatever comes in, whether it comes in here... Um, or whether it comes in on the web, um, is what we make our living at. For 17 years, I've done this, and the great blessing is I have a husband who is my benefactor. So in a sense, I have been supported by him in order to be able to teach here. And that's been great. And so let, I'll just tell you, because sometimes people want to know, it's, I mean, this is not about me, um, that my income last year for the first time went over $10,000 from this group. So I think it was 11 something. So as we look to the future, I'm 66, and I'm not going to be here for forever. I will either retire or die, whichever comes first. <laughs> this is how it is, right? And not all of the teachers in our teacher pool have benefactors. And some of them are trying to live on teaching. So we as a community are going to begin to talk about teacher Donna. So this is not a pitch for tonight. This is really just wanting to tell you a little bit about how the system works. And we're going to begin to look about how can we, as a community, do whatever we need to do so that we can support our teachers. It might mean that all the money comes into Vipassana Santa Cruz, and then we offer some of it to teachers. It may be that there's a special teacher support fund. There's a variety of different things that we can do. And we're going to be talking to you, as well as amongst ourselves as a teacher group and as a board group, trying to figure out how it is that we can make Donna work. And we're doing this because we want the Dharma to keep on going. You know, it's wonderful. Isn't it amazing? 2,500 years ago, the Buddha sat under a tree, woke up, whatever that was, began to teach, and taught in such a way that we are here. So our hope is that that reverberation will keep going. And we're in this very different culture. It's not Asia. It's 21st century United States. And so how do we make that work in this culture is really the question. So I think I'm going to stop there. I suspect we're going to have more questions about Donna than about faith. That's fine. Um, and I'm, I'm really personally, I'm happy to answer Financial questions. I'm. I don't be embarrassed to ask anything. I guess is really what I'm wanting to say to you, and um, and know that this is really just the beginning of a conversation that you'll probably hear more from um, about it from other people. So, the floor is yours, and let's see if we have any curiosity about how Donna works or your observations about it. 
the Tuesday group was pretty interested, so I'll be interested if you're not so interested. <laughs> Please. Well, is it ever, is it always ready to Thank you. Sometimes, it, generosity is not just money. It's really, really important to say that, and I meant to, and I appreciate that you pointed me back in that direction. Um, <clears throat> so generosity can be generosity of time. It can be generosity of presence. It can be all kinds of things that have not to do with resources. So that's very important. We have a, a hugely generous group of volunteers who support this place, for example, with Denny. Where's Denny? Here's Denny as our chief volunteer, chief setter-upper. And so he's the person who opens and closes every Thursday night, you know. And there's somebody else who just signed up to do the Sangha roster. And we have G over here who was the architect who really helped us and volunteered all his time to get this place going and organized. We had people who came and painted and, you know, people who do the flowers. Hannah was in here earlier getting the flowers organized for tonight. And so we have all kinds of people who volunteer time. For the teachers, I'm trying to think if there's been... I mean, there are people who sometimes, um, for example, will write me a note and say, I'd like to offer you a massage. Certainly people offer things like books and things. Um, we haven't had anybody um, offer to do, let's say, anything like health insurance or anything like that. So, um, Or I suppose you could offer a teacher, I don't know. I mean, what did you have in mind? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking we have a community. Yes, and some of that does happen. Yes, yes. And I think what we're really wanting to look at is, for example, I die or I retire, and we have a younger teacher who would really like, this is a hypothetical person, so this is not anybody that I'm specifically thinking about in our community. We have a younger person who's come along as a teacher who would really like to be here in Santa Cruz as a full-time Dharma teacher. So, rent, house, automobile, insurance. There are no perks in the teacher world. There's no retirement. There's no health insurance. So, those are the truths. And that makes it very, very difficult. you know. And it will make it difficult. So, it's, I think it's very useful for us to begin to look out how are we going to do this. Right now, we're still okay. But... That could change. Um, I hope not anytime too soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please, great. <laughs> you be the question person. Okay. So, uh, is there a way then for the teachers to say things that might be needed, or for the center to say, "Well, we have this teacher, but they need room to live in." Because if there was a need list, then people might volunteer. The closest thing I've heard to that is there's a community in New York where the teacher um, was wanting to do it on purely Donna basis, and the setup he has, he finally went to his community and said, I'm not making it here in New York City. It's in New York City, actually. 
And so they agreed on a sum of money that would be reasonable for him to live. And he now goes to his sangha halfway through the month and says, this is how far along we are. Sometimes he's doing very well, sometimes not. And they know if they're going to keep their teacher, they need to come up with a certain amount. Just like we know here, and you've, many of you have heard this figure before, that we have $2,700 in rent and expenses every month. So people know that. And we've been astounded at how well supported we've been. But people don't know that about what we as a teacher group need. And that may be something that we can change and put out and let you all know. The other question that comes up is people often say, well, how much? How much should I give? How do I know? You know, And some that struggle is part of the struggle of Donna. I struggle with it when I go on a retreat. Uh-huh. Should I write the check for this much? And then I think, no, I'll write it for this much. You know, give them everything. And then I think, no, 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 I can't do that. And you go back and forth, you know, how much, how much. But, you know, and so nobody is usually willing to tell you how much. But I suggest to people, you know, think about bagel and coffee or a movie or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. That can sometimes be a guideline for what do you do when you come just for an evening. Actually, Marcy had something. Marcy, who teaches Qigong for this, has something very interesting that she gives her class classes in terms of dana. Uh-huh. Because there is this struggle all the time. We're not a culture that's used to giving in that particular way. So it's kind of foreign and kind of uncomfortable, even when you've had some experience mm-hmm. with it. So I think what Marcy suggested is to... Um, you know, the thought of not giving too much and not giving too little, you're going to have to find what's just right. And so she looks at it as a practice in action. Think about it ahead of time. As you're giving the money, as you're donating it, how does that feel? Does that feel like the mm-hmm. right amount? And and evaluate it or, or think about it a bit afterwards. How did it feel to give that amount? Did it seem like the right amount? Did you feel a little stingy, or did you feel like you, you know, overdone it in terms of your particular resources? You have to do it according to your own resources, mm-hmm. and um, and to keep checking that out, to really pay attention to it. In that way, it's something that you grow. With. You know, you come to an understanding of what's the right amount for you. And the the beauty of the system is that. It's the right amount for you. And so some people have great resources. They can offer a lot to the community. And other people don't have very much. And so it's, it's not that there's a set amount that works for everyone, you know. It's, 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 it's a way that everyone, you know, maybe at some point you don't have very much and then later on you do. Or one of the things we're looking at, um, in, at up at Spirit Rock where I also teach is we have a whole community of people who used to be able to put offer a lot, and now they're getting to be senior citizens on fixed incomes, and now they can't. And so how do we also honor that kind of situation and know that that will be true? Um, yes, please. Do teachers sometimes teach part-time and have a yes. part-time job yes. doing something yes. else? Yes, there are. For many years I worked as a therapist as well as teaching, 
many many of our teachers do that. They do therapy or they do some kind of coaching or something like that, and either do it on a sliding scale or actually charge for it. Yeah. Please. Um, a couple of things come to mind. Um, I've been aware of this with my uncle, the priest, and kind of I've always, you know, seen his lifestyle and what it was in his tradition. And then I have several friends that taught for their church. Mm-hmm. And when that was first, when I first heard that tradition, it really made me think because then it was about a percentage uh-huh. um, of your own lifestyle. And, um, that was the first kind of guideline that I ever really heard of. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was like growing up, you would just give books and then mom had that week, you know, as opposed to like having a budget. <laughs> and that was important to me, you know, for the friends of my departed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just, uh, we have many models to look at. Because we do, we have, here we are in the West, we have the church model as well as the Buddhist model. There's nothing wrong with it, so let's look at it. And I doubt that we're going to come up with a set percentage. I don't think that would sit very well. But <laughs> it, as a, something to consider, it was like one, one right. way some people do it. Yeah. I, never, I may have thought of it prior Right, right. It's, it's very inter- and inspiring yeah. sometimes to think about that. I think I'm going to stop because it's getting late. All of your questions, I'm sure, are not answered. I didn't intend for them to be. I kind of intended to stir the pot a little bit tonight. So I hope the pot is stirred. I hope you'll think about it. And just know that the board will probably be putting out some kind of information or questionnaire or having some kind of who knows what at some point to continue to talk about this. So... um, but it seemed really important to kind of bring it up into people's consciousness. Um, one of the most immediate things that's likely to be happening in the next couple of weeks is that when you go online to donate, in addition to being able to donate to a specific teacher, there'll be a teacher fund, so that if you want to just donate to all of the teachers and let us figure it out, you can do that as well. So stay tuned. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm pretty confident that it will. So, just a few other announcements. Um, <clears throat> Marcy, our wonderful Qigong teacher, does have a day long um, with Qigong and Vipassana on March 30th. So, um, that's a couple of weeks away. There's flyers over on the table. There's flyers over there for our retreat at the end of May over Memorial Day weekend at Land of Medicine Buddha. It's a retreat just for this community. We do have scholarship available, so please, um, if you're interested in a retreat, feels nice to sit with people that you see regularly, um, please sign up. And if any of you are interested in relationship, committed relationship as spiritual practice, um, my husband and I are doing another weekend in May, and we still have room for a couple. So um, there's flyers also over there on the table, and we'd be happy to talk to you. And the Donna baskets, just because we've had a lot of, are right there. They're just inside the door tonight instead of out on the sideboard. So just know if you go looking for them, that's where they are. Any other announcements that I might have? Please, Jill. You wouldn't have known that I was going to announce this tonight, but 
starting the 24th of April, which seems like a long way away, but not that far, I'm going to have about a six-week meta class. Good. And um, you are all welcome. It's suitable for very new practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.